Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the angry Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I only say that not because you're actually angry, but because of what we're going to be talking about in some of these issues. So, how you been, pal? It's uh, it's kind of fun. It's for a nice change of pace. We're going to talk about Aquaman and Firestorm on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking it up. You know, the, the, we, we've, you've talked about Aquaman off and on. Uh, you had a, that great episode with Chris where you talked about the Superman animated series. Yeah, that uh, was Chris, only two Chris episodes An- ago. Sorry, yeah. Chris and Cindy. Uh, and then, uh, but for Firestorm, we haven't talked about him since May. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, we talked about him, but we haven't actually covered a Firestorm Ooh, issue. Sorry about so, that, folks. So normally this would be the part where I'd say this is our monthly review episode, but uh, not exactly so much monthly. <laughs> no, and not so much even a review episode in their classic form, at least. Yeah, that's right. Well, why don't you tell people about some of the changes we're doing starting this episode? Yeah, well, a couple of people have asked occasionally, mostly Martin Gray is kind of a pain about that. He has asked, uh, like, are we going to go back to doing new issue reviews? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, right now, I'm sort of following my joy because we don't have between all the other shows that Chag and I are doing. We're we're going to be um, who's who is going to be starting up again the Loose Leafs, which Woo! everybody's super excited about, and Digest Cast, and Chag does JLI, and I have my other shows that I'm doing. Like we just don't have a lot of Sunday slot anymore room for Fire and Water, particularly. And so when we're doing it, I don't know. I for at least for Aquaman, I kind of want to talk about the older stuff that we haven't had a chance to talk about. So for right now, I'm content to talk about the 60s Aquaman run, which we're going to be doing today and we'll be doing in subsequent episodes. So will we ever get back to the new issues? Probably at some point, but I can't promise you that it's going to be anytime soon. If you really want to hear us talk about the new issues, let me let me let us know in the feedback. You know, maybe if enough people say, please start doing them again, maybe we will. But for right now, I'm, I'm kind of uh, got my head in the 60s. 
Yeah, the way I'm kind of seeing it is, you know, Firestorm, there is no new Firestorm book on the shelves anyway. He's not anywhere in the DC Universe at this point. Um, but so we're going to be covering classic stuff, and that's what I love. That's where I find my joy. And, you know, that's truthfully what made Rob love Aquaman was these 60 stories. And that's what our network's all about is finding our joy. So as you mentioned earlier, let's just follow our joy and let's just have fun with it. Yep, so. absolutely. All right, so we're going to dive in. We're going to cover one issue of the classic SAG Aquaman. We got to come up with a better acronym than that. I mean, if we flip that's it around, they, it just becomes that's what they called themselves. Who, who I know. Yeah. If, and if we flip it around, it just becomes gas, which really isn't any better. No, that's but, that's worse. <laughs> so we're going to cover one issue of Aquaman, which, by the way, when we get to the cover, that's a discussion all by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we are going to cover a chalk a block. Uh, like almost a mini trade paperback of Firestorm. We're going to cover four issues of Firestorm, which form one large story, and it's great. And then once all that's done, we're going to do your listener feedback. So, But before we do any of that, folks, we do need to take a second to thank our sponsor. This episode of the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Well, since Halloween is approaching, I wanted to do something scary. And so I picked uh, <laughs> Showcase Presents House of Mystery, Volume 2. Do you dare to enter the House of Mystery? This value-priced collection includes stories from House of Mystery 195 through 211. These fantastic black-and-white tales of mystery and suspense from the 1970s feature thrilling stories with surprise twist endings that will keep readers on the edge of their seats. It's got a great cover by Nick Cardi, a strangely kind of nice cover by Nick Cardi. Uh, there's a skeleton, and he's at a cemetery, and he's got a sign that says, Closed, No One Dies Today. So it's kind of a nice cover, really, huh. when you think about it. And yeah. there's, there's two kids outside. Uh, they're like, whoa, what's going on? Um, now, like, some of the showcase cases we've talked about previous episodes like some of the showcases i think don't work as well because they're in black and white but the the house of mystery really do i think in fact they work Mm -hmm. even if not even in some cases better in black and white so this is a great way to get some of the really classic 70s house of mystery because this is after the comics code had been uh, kind of eased a little and they got rid of uh, martian minhunter and dial h for hero and they turned house of mystery back into an actual mystery title with you know art by again nick carty neil adams wally wood sergio aragones you know Gil Kane, all those great guys. So I got one quick question. Yes. House of Mystery is that uh, was that Kane? Was he the frame yes, sequence for those? Kane. That's Kane. okay. Gotcha. Yeah, Abel was House of Secrets and Kane was House of Mystery. Okay. So uh, five hundred and fifty-two pages, <sighs> bulletproof. Wow. Normal price sixteen ninety nine in stock trade. Don't hold me to that. In stock trades price nine dollars and eighty five cents. You save forty two percent off. A great gift for anyone or for yourself for Halloween. Nice. That sounds awesome. And I do love those showcases. I, between the essentials and the showcases, I get a lot of joy out of those. Finished reading my Batman and the Outsiders uh, showcase not too long ago, which maybe it would have been better in color, but I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Jim Aparo, which we're going to be talking about today. This stuff so. looks great in black and white. Oh, yeah. So, uh, following my joy, I went ahead and picked something. It's actually fairly recent. It's the Sugar and Spike Metahuman Investigations trade paperback. Now, you guys may remember we did a while back the Legends of Tomorrow uh, miniseries, uh, the big fat 795 uh, miniseries. And one of the lead stories in there, of course, was Firestorm that we talked about every month, but also the Sugar and Spike uh, anthology stories that we just loved. I and mean, it was sort of the runaway, unexpected hit of that anthology. No one expected anything of it. True. I, w- I was I was like, Ugh, growing up sugar and spike, but it, right. I actually thought it was terrific. It was wonderfully charming. Written by Keith Giffen, uh, art by, I can't say this, I'm gonna, sorry. Still don't know how to say that name. Bill Quiss Ever, Everly? I don't know. She's anyway. great, no matter what. No matter how you say your name, she's terrific. 
it's stunning. So yes, it is about Sugar and Spike. They are growing up. They have an investigation agency, and they have this strange relationship where she's just super hard edged, and he's a bit of a doof, and it just really works. They investigate all these fun, fun stories where each episode or each installment, it's six installments, it touches on some Silver Age thing. I don't want to spoil any of it, but they go back and they touch something basically from the old Silver Age and give it a fun modern day spin and it's just an absolute joy every single one of them I, I cannot endorse this enough it's 144 pages full color normally retails for 14.95 you can get it for 42 percent off so it's only eight dollars and 69 cents that's about the same price as one of those issues of legends of tomorrow i mean you gotta get this if you haven't read it so folks uh for these and all your other collector edition needs please visit instocktrades.com go up to the contact us button and let them know the fire and water podcast sent you oh. All right. Well, Rob, uh, we are going to start off with the guy who talks to fish, although I don't know that he talks to any fish in this issue. But we're going to do Aquaman number 42. And just so you know, it's your turn to start. Hort! <laughs> uh, yeah, this issue uh, went on sale September 3rd, 1968. Features a cover by Nick Cardi. We will get to that in a moment because, the okay. co- again, the cover by itself is like probably worthy of an episode. Uh, the story is, Is This My Foe? Written, of course, by Steve Skates. I said it right this time. Jim Aparo and the editor is Dick Giordano. Now, do you want to talk about the cover first or do you want to do it at yeah, the end? We, we got it. We got to talk okay. about the cover. This cover features – it's a designed by Carmen Infantino, drawn by Nick Cardi. It's got Black Mana holding a prostrate Aquaman over his shoulders, about to throw him kind of off this ledge. And he is standing – on a bunch of uh, rocks that form the letters Aquaman. And it's kind of got this volcanic lava kind of coloring. There's some light streaming down on man. It's a, it's a very dramatic upshot. And then we see the title of the story. It says, is this my foe? And, you know, when anytime you ever see like a documentary or any article about like 60s comics or 60s DC, this cover is almost always one of the ones pictured because it was showing you that DC was desperately trying to catch up with Marvel in sort of the hip comics department. And so they were doing covers that were pretty uncommercial. And in this case, like putting the logo down at the bottom of the cover. Now, of course, we do see the words Aquaman in text on the on the. Uh, the corner because that was the that was the in, little in crossword format in too. crossword format yeah <laughs> they did that so if you so when when books were arranged on a newsstand where they would be on top of one another this would be seen but nevertheless mm-hmm. uh this was a very uncommercial thing it, it reminds you a lot of that flash cover where flash is underneath the lettering of his own name and all the villains are sitting on top mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the batman cover where blockbuster is smashing the word batman and he's leaping down so they were trying to do these really out there covers and this is it's just a beauty. It's just there. There's no way that you would not be able to separate twelve cents from a kid if he saw this on the newsstand. So this this is really one of like the preeminent Aquaman images. This cover. So Rob was all nice and flowery. I'm going to cut right to it. This thing is badass. I mean, seriously, <laughs> even by modern standards. Yeah, and I don't think he did the lighting justice. The lighting is actually coming from the volcanic area. Right. So it, it's they're being lit from beneath. Uh, Black Man, it looks so awesome. The no way he's totally. him at all. Right, yeah. The the way he totally is owning Aquaman in that scene, and just the jaggedness of the Aquaman logo is just like, whoa! I mean, this is tough. You put this on the stands today, and it's still going to sell like hotcakes. It's that great of a cover. Uh, it really is impressive. I remember when I first started collecting Aquaman, I, I started buying the back issues. I started with issue 56, of course, which is the best of all of them. But no, not really. Actually, this one's even better. But uh, That's a good and, issue, though. <laughs> 
it is, was a great cover. I mean, uh, you know, Monster They Detroit. But anyway, I, I, was, I fell in love with these Aquaman covers, and this is one of the earliest ones I came across, and I was just blown away. And this is in the middle of the 90s. You know, this is extreme 90s when I came across this, and I'm like, this is amazing. And to this day, it's, it, I still think it's the best Aquaman cover of them all. So it's absolutely beautiful. And if you want to see an even cleaner version of it, some nerd uh, photoshopped and took the Aquamans out of the top left-hand corner, the one we talked about, the Crossroads one, and actually took it and removed those and put it up on their blog. I don't know. It's like Aqua, Aquaman Shrine or something like that. Somebody had a lot of free time. Apparently he did. So before he was podcasting, I think. But <laughs> it's a, it is a beaut. It is absolutely stunning. <laughs> Did I have a life before podcasting? I don't remember. <laughs> so, all right. I, I don't know what else to say other than it's just beautiful. And they, I, I wish I had a poster of it. You yeah, know? it is. It's a great, great. It's one of the great images of DC Comics in the 60s. It really is. Yeah. It's just terrific. And I'm glad that, like, you know, Aquaman is one of the titles they experimented on. I think that's cool. You know, it wasn't. Not that uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman didn't have great covers, and they even we see some ads here in this comic that feature some amazing covers, but this this thing is super. Anyway, uh, when we left, last time we left Aquaman, he was still searching for Mira, who had disappeared. At the end of number 41, he stumbled into this remote uh, kind of town and where he saw this queen who he thought it was Mira, and it turns out it's just a, a duplicate. So this issue, this issue opens with him on his seahorse, and he's still searching for her. Uh, Mira. So while he's uh, out there on the seahorse, uh, he gets attacked by one of this sort of like primitive race called the Marzons. So this guy attacks him with a spear. Aquaman manages to defend himself, but it's a big fight because the guy's kind of pretty powerful. He knocks the guy out, but then another one of the Marzons shows up, and so they each grab Aquaman by the arm and they're ready to like throttle him with their, uh, stab him with the spears. But then he manages, um, Aquaman manages to get himself free, knocks out two of the attackers, and demands answers from a third. Uh, but the this third one doesn't speak the same language as Aquaman, so he can't answer. He takes off, running scared. Aquaman wonders if they are involved with those who kidnapped Mira, which of course again happened previous issue. So he decides to investigate further. He reaches a more populated area where he sees a group of these Marzons fighting each other. He goes looking for the Marzon King and sees some dwellings built on a high cliff, but that is not all he sees. He sees Manta's ship, the Black Manta ship. I think it's called the, yeah, it's just called the Manta ship. And he sees Black Manta swimming outside of it. The Marzons bow and kneel to Manta as if he was a god. Aquaman thinks it had to have been Manta that kidnapped Mira, and he grows red with rage. He surprises Manta with his presence, and Black Manta sicks a gang of angry Marzons on him. Aquaman fights with such fury that it scares even Manta that he calls them off. Black Manta, though, is not involved with Mira's kidnapping, but he pretends to be and tells Aquaman that he will tell him the truth, but only by fighting in the Marzon's fighting arena. Bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. Aquaman thinks something is suspicious, but goes along with the plan, because of course he does. Aquaman and Black Manta go at it, with Manta going on the offensive. He okay, if I can interrupt for one second. Yes. That is where that, when I said at the beginning of the episode, Hort, you may begin, that's because at that scene they, they go, Hort, and Aquaman gets attacked, and it's like, oh, I guess that meant begin. Yes, you hear the da 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 So Aquaman and Black Manta go at it, with Manta going on the offensive. He blinds Aquaman with force beams from his eyes, knocking the Sea King over. He prepares the killing blow. But Aquaman, still blinded, does the unexpected and hurls himself right at Mana, not giving him enough space to use the spear Mana is carrying. With the blindness now wearing off, Aquaman starts knocking Mana around, demanding to know where Mira is. Uh, as it looks as though Mana is about to lose, one of the Marzons pulls a switch on a machine inside a cave, transporting Mana away into his Manta ship. As Mana's ship starts to pull away, he tells Aquaman the truth, that he knows nothing of Mira's disappearance, but he knows who was. His ship then also transports away. 
Aquaman takes on one less group of Marzans, wondering what to believe. Not wanting to fight anymore, he uses less direct tactics to end the fight, and he basically uh, knocks them off their feet by swirling around them and creating a whirlpool. So at the end of the issue, he is still searching for Mira, and he is down on the ocean floor, raging to the heavens, trying to find Black Manta. And it ends with his, and it ends with him saying, "If only I could have beaten the truth out of Black Manta." And it says, "To be continued." He's an angry man in this comic. He is super angry in this one. <laughs> so you, you left out one little thing. The, there is a subplot the, that takes place yes. back in Atlantis where Aquaman has, because he's because he's off being a superhero like he is in every iteration of Aquaman, he has installed this guy Narcran as the new head of Atlantis. And this guy is kind of on a uh, Trumpian tear to remake <laughs> make Atlantis great again. And uh, Tula is there. Uh, and she's getting scared that uh, Atlantis will, uh, you know, Aquaman won't be able to return to Atlantis with uh, with uh, Narcron being uh, in charge of it for so long. And of course, normally Aqualad would be there to help, but Aqualad was knocked out in the previous issue, and he's still unconscious at this point. So Aqua Girl is getting really worried that uh, that bad things are happening in Atlantis. And I only wanted to bring that up because a couple of things, specifically on page 14, um, I, I've got lots of complimentary things to say about the art, but I will say this is one of the only negative things I've got. The the unique panel design Jim Aparo went for on page 14. A little hard to it follow. Does, yeah, you can't figure out where the word balloons are supposed to go and you read them out of order, unfortunately, no matter what you try, which is a little disappointing. But I, I also want to ask, bottom left-hand corner of page 14, the guy in the foreground yeah. who's colored, background color – that has clearly got to be somebody from real life. I mean, yeah, Perro loved to do that. He loved to put real people as background characters, or in this case, a foreground character. But I don't know it, who that is. I is it WC Fields? I mean, <laughs> or Mort Weisinger or something? If I, I don't am, know. if I am going to venture a guess that I'm totally pulling out of thin air, I'm going to say it's Saul Brodsky. I think uh, it was a Marvel okay. staffer or something, or Saul Harrison. Saul Harrison is what I meant. But I don't know. I don't know if Saul Harrison was that bald. So I, it may just be somebody from from Apero's life that we don't know, but it's, it's clearly meant to be somebody cause it's a very distinctive likeness. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a real world, uh, translation versus the sort of you know cartoonish version of Tula you see on the same page. Absolutely. Right. So, right. but just want to mention, and also this, this narc, narc guys, I, I like the subplot developing of him, you know, letting the power go to his head. So that's pretty cool. Aquala, Aquaman has to stop being King of Atlantis. I say it every like year on the show because he hands it over to somebody else and Atlantis gets all pissed at him. He doesn't want to be, you know. It's like just, just give it up. Just, oh, you know, he never learned. Well, I, I, you know, I know we're not doing much of the new comics, but I thought they found a good balance for that in the new comics of the last couple of years. But right. um, now, reading this, I could totally hear, and you know, you know the actor's voice. I don't, but I could totally hear the voice actor from the Aquaman 1960s cartoon in my head every time okay. he spoke. I mean, like it just, I don't know that di- it just like the dialogue was written for him. You know, I wonder if, uh, if skates was, you know, hearing him in his head as well. And the black mana voice, even though this was written long before it, I could hear the challenge of the super friends version oh, of black mana. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was like a fun, it was like, it was like, you know, a little cartoon. It was fun in my head. I liked that. And now last issue, uh, or last episode where we covered this, which is months ago, but we covered the previous two episodes issues. I was pretty critical. I was like, okay, I want to love these comics, but I'm not there yet. And uh, in fact, I got a lot of flack in the feedback for being so negative about it. But I have to tell you, this is a huge improvement. This, I can see why you would fall in love with this issue. It is an absolute joy. And I've talked about how much I love Aparo in the 70s. Now, this is 1968, but in, starting in this issue, you can start to see the Aparo faces are coming into existence. Yep, yep. you see the development of the, of the, of the style. 
Uh, yeah. Just in, yeah, yeah. Especially when Aquaman's ticked. <laughs> I love that he beats up an old man in this issue. <laughs> yes, he does. He smacks the guy around. He's so nuts. I, I expect him to like smash something against a fireplace and say, you want to get nuts? Let's yeah. get nuts. <laughs> um, from a plotting point of view, I love that you know Black Mana just decides to completely take advantage of the situation. He's like, oh, Aquaman's batshit crazy right He's now. just a dick. <laughs> I'm going to totally screw with him. I kind of wish they hadn't told us, the reader, that Black Mana didn't know the deal with Mara. I kind of would have rathered you know, we didn't find out until the end ourselves. Right, we get but, a, you know, a thought balloon that reveals that, yeah. Yeah, so but I guess that probably made sense because later on we wouldn't have believed man and we would have thought he was lying. But in this way, we know he was telling the truth. But and then in fact, when he gets away, this I found this kind of funny. You know, like he, he 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 teleports away, and then later on his ship sort of I don't know whether they're going into cloaking mode or or teleporting. I don't know whatever. The ship's actually disappearing and fading away, but it takes a long damn time for that ship to fade away. They have a whole conversation while the ship is fading away, <laughs> which cracked me up. But. Overall, it was an absolute uh, joy. I love the coloring too, because you know, I was about underwater. To say that the coloring in oh. this book is terrific. Like, look at the look at Aquaman's face on page eight. You know, where he's just screaming, and like half his face is in all these different tones, and there's different colors coming down on his shoulders right before that. It's just really well done. And then the underwater swimming stuff before that, where each panel has sort of a different dominant color because undersea, but they're all that darker palette for underwater. It's really well done. Yeah, and Apero again. I love the stuff he's stuck in on page seven. The uh, panel on the left, Aquaman is swimming towards the camera. There's just a turtle swimming yep. up, you know, up towards the panel. And, like, it has nothing to do with the story, but, of course, it's underwater. There would be a turtle. And it's just it's just a great little piece of detail of, like, yeah, you're under the sea. There's going to be all these fish all over the place. It just looks great. Yeah, the coloring reminds me of kind of a lot of um, color forms where mm. they would, you know, because, like, a lot of foreground figures are in, like, purple or blue. They have these sort of unique coloring, and it really gives it kind of this – Really neat depth. I don't know who colored this because um, uh, I don't believe yeah. it says it in the Mike's Amazing World anywhere. But because uh, they didn't have color credits at this point, but it just really is very, very striking. Um, I and this isn't writing wise. This isn't my favorite just because Aquaman is just such a hothead here. But mm-hmm. uh, the the story is so fun and compelling, and and again, it's, it's so beautiful to look at. And I could understand being mad that Mira's gone. So you know, I get it. But uh, yeah, you. The, I think the these guys developed very quickly. I think 42 is a big, as much as I like 40 and 41, I think 42 is a big improvement and it gets even better after this. Like they really improve by leaps and bounds. I'm looking forward to getting into those too. You know, one of the things I was critical on last time and that I'm looking through here now and I see is not as much the issue was I kept talking about how, you know, they're underwater and yet everyone was walking on the ground as if they were, you know, above ground. As right. Gravity affected them the same way. But in this one, there are people quite – other than Atlantis. Apparently Atlantis has some pretty strong gravity. But everywhere else, people are floating. People are swimming. People are off the ground, moving around. There's fluidity to their motion. So that's nice to see because that's great. I mean that's the environment they're in. Um, one final detail on the letters page. Uh, there is someone. There is someone named Julia Everett. She's uh, in my notes too. <laughs> Julia, Julia, too. Oh, girl, is this mad? She is so mad uh, about Nick Cardi leaving Aquaman. She writes an open letter to any and all who had anything to do with Nick Cardi leaving Aquaman. Drop dead. And she signs it sincerely, Julia Everett, and then crossed out sincerely. Now I don't know if that was if she did it in the letter and then Giordano reproduced that because you know, that's, that's typeset copy. Well, well she but, crossed out deer as well. Oh, that's right. She did. Yeah. That's yeah. at the bottom of the column. Yeah. So people yeah. were really, really mad about Nick Cardi 
uh, leaving Aquaman. Now, of course, they would grow to love Jim Aparo pretty quickly, but I just love how angry Julia Everett from Port Jervis, New York, was. She was she was real pissed. And Giordano even says, uh, nothing like a poison pen letter to keep a letters page from getting boring. <laughs> I couldn't believe they printed it, you know. And she even goes on to say how, like, she, you know, she never thought anyone could top Nick Cardi, and I was right. You know, it's like, woof, yeah. she's really <laughs> mad. <laughs> she was the comment section on the internet before there was such a thing existed. She was, yeah, she was the YouTube comments. Is yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, all in all, it's a great comic, Rob, and I'm really glad that we took the time to read this because it was a pure joy. Yeah, it's great stuff. All right, we're going to move on to the fireheaded guy. Let's go. Okay, so as I said, we're doing almost like a trade paperback size version of this. So my synopsis are going to be much shorter than usual, but we will get the gist of it. We're going to cover Fury of Firestorm issues number 33 through 36 of four comics. And the cover dates for these things, they range from starting in December 6th, 1984, and the last one came out on March 7th, 1985. Now, if you think about that, at the very tippy end of 1984 and the first few months of 1985 – there were some really good damn comics that started around this time, Rob, that I'm going to mention when we get to the end because the ads in this thing – I don't know if you read a digital version or read the original issues, but the ads in this uh, – I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This I, is have like, the, I have the digital one, so I don't okay. believe – I, I, I read two different – I read my version of Comicsology and I read the hard copies, but this is this is our time, brother. It is. Okay. <laughs> so all, all four of these issues uh, have the same credit, so I'll just do it once. Written and edited by Jerry Conway, pencils by Raphael Keenan. Inks by Alan Kupperberg, uh, and color, and he, that's a new inker. You know, for years we had, um, uh, uh, I, I'm totally blanking on his name, uh, Roden Rodriguez. Roden Rodriguez, yeah. Yep, we had Roden Rodriguez for years, and then we had a, a couple of change. we had, um, Romeo Tengal for a while, and now we have Alan Kupperberg, and we're going to talk about that, and Colors by Nancy Houlihan. So at a 10,000-foot level, these four issues, it's the story of a young man lacking in self-confidence and feeling alone in the world, uh, even though he's surrounded by people that care about him. And by the end, though, the young man has come around to liking himself and feeling more confident. So it's a nice triumphant story, and it works well as, like I said, a four-issue collection. So the and I'm going to do the re- – I think we'll talk about all, all of it at the end, but we got to talk about the covers as we go because that's worth it. So, because these are some amazing covers. I love these. Issue number 33, covered by uh, um, Rafael Cannon and Dick Giordano. It is an almost all yellow cover. There are these two guys in the background, or one's a lady, one's a guy, and they are shooting essentially flamethrowers. So there's flames coming out at you, and Firestorm's in the foreground, but he is injured. He's on the ropes. He's like, ah! And it says, burn Manhattan, burn. So what do you think of this cover? Oh, it's terrific. Very exciting. I mean, Ken, K&N and Dick Giordano, it can't be, I yeah. mean, you know, Dick Giordano inking your cover is good uh immediately uh no i think it's i think it's terrific it's very you know it jumps right off the stands at you and it's great yeah i think it's designed really nicely yeah, it's yeah, yeah. the the yellow strong which and then everything else is done in like shades of reds and oranges to sort of complement and still look like fire so it's 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 powerful i like it so uh, the issue opens with Dr. Louise Lincoln being threatened by F- Killer Frost. Now, we met Louise Lincoln about a year prior to this issue when she was trying to help Killer Frost before the Ice Queen died. And Louise is seeking treatment uh, with a therapist for her reoccurring nightmares and her feelings of guilt and fear. Meanwhile, Firestorm investigates an explosion and a fire at a Manhattan restaurant and accidentally spreads the fire even further due to his impulsiveness. Inside, two armed terrorists are wearing fire protective suits and they attack Firestorm at the restaurant. And 
while they're escaping, they drop a note demanding the release of Plastique from prison. Uh, Ronnie shares this note with, a, with his father, works for a newspaper, and impresses his father, which is a rare event. Meanwhile, Professor Stein is catching up with his uh, somewhat estranged significant other, uh, Belle, who we met several issues ago. And then Martin receives a mysterious letter that we'll talk about more about later. Then we catch up again with Dr. Louise Lincoln as she performs an experiment in ultra-cold freezing at her New Jersey lab, which of course goes horribly wrong. And uh, we're, we're introduced to a terrorist from Quebec named La Flambeau. I did not make that up. And he broadcasts on all radio and TV channels, threatening to burn all of New York City if Plastique is not released by midnight. Firestorm arrives and tries to stop the terrorists, but the massive explosion is triggered. Oh, my gosh. So um, you've got two explosions going on there, really. You've got the one in New York City with uh, with, with La Flambeau. <laughs> That's the stupidest name. Uh, and then, of course, Dr. Louise Lincoln, who's in New Jersey, where everything goes wrong. So. Uh, but we'll save our discussion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just let it go. It's okay. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> All right, issue 34. Another amazing cover. Uh, again, by KN and Giordano. This one is the whole top, like the top three quarters of the page is just a sheer brick of ice you know it's beautifully crystalled and it got shading and stuff like that with blues but it's ice and it's all weighing down on firestorm it's on his shoulders he's being crushed beneath this ice and it says killer frost lives again the big freeze what do you think of this cover this was the best of the bunch this is uh, this is a awesome cover it's one of the best firestorm covers of, of i haven't gone ahead and looked at like the future issues but mm-hmm. of the ones we've looked at this is i would put this in like top five of firestorm covers it's visually compelling great colors it's yeah it's it's wonderful it tells a whole story it's it's perfect it really really does a great job it makes you it, you almost can't not pick it up you know and with the contrast of the issue before being fire and now this one being ice it just it all works well and it's in artistically it is illustrated just to hell and back with the, with all the lines and everything on the ice it's great it reminds i love me it of that uh, secret wars cover where the hulk was under the giant mountain <laughs> glad you brought that up we are going to talk about that sir <laughs> all right uh getting into the recap la flambeau Again, it's terrible. Uh, detonates his explosion that destroys the Goodware blimp, which is flying overhead, and ignites a massive blaze that threatens to sweep through Manhattan. Firestorm battles the blaze as these like napalm-like substances raining down on Manhattan, and our hero is turning the burning rain into snowballs. In the confusion, an out-of-control car threatens to hit Ronnie's friends, Doreen, Jefferson, Stella, and Cliff. Uh, hey, Jefferson, star of Legends tomorrow. Uh, and so uh, the, Ronnie, or Firestorm sees this car careening out of control, and he has to intervene. Doreen thinks that there's something strangely familiar about the nuclear man. And while Ronnie stresses about his girl trouble, which is, of course, him and Doreen and Firehawk, uh, Ronnie, later on, Ronnie, after everything settled down, Ronnie goes to school and he turn, and he aces a chemistry final exam, which is sort of bizarre because he seems to innately understand all the questions and easily figures out the answers, which is very weird for him as he calls himself a dumb jock. Professor Stein also reveals to uh, his friends – These things are full of subplots, by the way. Uh, So Professor Stein reveals to his friends that he's been offered a teaching position. That was the mysterious letter that he got last issue. A teaching position at Vandermeer University in Pittsburgh, and he's considering leaving New York and taking the job. Meanwhile, Ronnie's father, Ed Raymond, asks Felicity Smoke out on a date. Yeah, that's right, smoking Felicity Smoke from Arrow. And if you remember, Felicity in the comics is the woman who hates Firestorm. Ronnie tries to talk to Doreen about their feelings, but right as she opens up her heart to him, he is whisked away to form Firestorm. And at the, um, 
And from the last issue, the firefighters and first responders are struggling to control that explosion that destroyed Dr. Louise Lincoln's New Jersey lab. And Firestorm flies to New Jersey to investigate and finds Killer Frost alive and out for revenge. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Next issue, 35. This one is, uh, the cover is by Raphael Cannon by himself this time. So that's a little different. This is the first time I think Cannon's ever had a cover without an inker. And this one has Firestorm in the middle, and on the uh, below him, uh, he's sort of flying in the air. And behind him to the left is Plastique, causing a huge explosion. And in the foreground to the right is Killer Frost, who's throwing a bunch of ice daggers at him. And it says, look out, hothead. If Killer Frost doesn't get you, Plastique the woman bomb will. So, what do you think of this one? Um, it, well, I mean, I said the other one is a lot better, I think, just because it's just a better postery image. This is much more of like a Spider-Man type cover. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, by Jerry Conway calling him hothead, stuff like that. So, it's it's great. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly fine. It's nothing tremendous, as especially compared to the previous two, but there's nothing wrong with it either. So, it's fine. Design-wise, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, and I think Cannon does a nice job making himself. He really does. And oh, that's he gonna absolutely become... does. Sure. Yeah, and that's going to become important coming in because Alan Cumberbatch inking is not my favorite, so that's worth talking about. But um, I think it looks really good, and, and I think the cover blurbs might have been better if they kind of put them together rather than all over the cover. But <laughs> still, it's a fun cover. All right, so uh, Killer Frost buries Firestorm under a mountain of ice. Uh, which was the cover of 34, by the way, but we get it in 35. So Killer Frost buries Firestorm under a mountain of ice while she escapes. Meanwhile, in a prison in upstate New York, Plastique is injected by a friend of hers with a dangerous chemical giving her the ability to cause explosions from her own fire tips. I'm sorry, from her fingertips. She is now a living bomb, and she escapes the prison. Meanwhile, Firestorm is paralyzed under this mountain of ice until Professor Stein goads Ronnie, calling him a dumb jock and an uneducated hunk. Very reminiscent of Secret Wars where the Hulk was goaded into keeping the mountain from crushing the heroes. Interesting. Uh, Ed Raymond and Felicity Smoke enjoy a romantic date at the same time. Uh, after they get free of the mountain of ice, Professor Stein then tells Ronnie about the job at Vandermeer University in Pittsburgh. Well, Ronnie starts to feel sorry for himself about having to give up being Firestorm because if, if Stein moves to Pittsburgh, they're going to have to quit being Firestorm. And how uh, being without Firestorm and being without the professor makes Ronnie feel like just another dumb jock. And in an interlude, we see this strange beast reviewing these personnel files over at Vandermeer University, including one about Professor Stein. That's set up for issues down the line, folks. And finally, Killer Frost attacks at the Hudson Nuclear Facility, where Firestorm was born, planning to absorb the residual radiation. Firestorm tries to stop Killer Frost, but is ambushed by Plastique. Da-da-da! All right, getting on to our final issue, and then we'll get into the discussion. Fury of Firestorm, number 36, again covered by Raphael Cannon by himself. In the foreground, you've got Firestorm and Firehawk, and Firestorm is blasting down underneath them, and they're at the site of Niagara Falls. And you see Killer Frost in the background, and you see Plastique also in the background. Uh, and the battle, it says here, the battle lines are drawn. Now, I am interested to hear what you say from a design point of view. But I can tell you, for whatever reason, this has always been one of my favorite covers. Now, I will say the one with the ice is definitely uh, better artistically, you know, uh, uh, critically, it's a better one. But for some reason, I just love this cover. I think Firehawk looks beautiful and sexy. I think Firestorm looks great, sort of almost in a ballet pose, blasting at Killer Frost. Um, I did realize for the first time that Plastique looks kind of dumb because she's using her bomb burst right beneath her feet and she's standing on ice. That's not going to end well for her. Um, she's going to end up in the Niagara Falls if she's not careful. But what, now, as an artistic guy, what do you think of this cover? I think it's a little crowded. Um, I I, yeah. Firestorm's ballet pose is strange. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's it's there to because he has to be the the main central figure, and so he's kind of crowded out. 
spatially it's kind of weird because he seems to be in front of Firehawk if you see his foot, but then yeah. part of him is kind of behind her. And, and hmm. but he but he's much bigger than she. So I'm not I'm not totally down with the, the perspective on this. Um, I like the villains in the the background. That's a nice little thing. Plastique. I mean, kind of Plastique is uh, sort of doing something similar that she did in the previous cover, really. Yeah, um, but this time she's standing on top of ice. Yeah, so she's, she's going to go through when she blows up. <laughs> yeah, it's a, again, it's a little crowded. Like I think I think it, I think a suggestion of how crowded it is is that the the little box with the thirty six seventy five cents Canada night is like way down further down you would ever yeah. normally have it. So I think it was like when they were doing the paste ups for this, they're like, where are we going to put this? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not it's not bad. It's just a little crowded. I and I totally see you're right in every respect, but for some reason I I can't. And maybe it's just from the time of my life because this is when I was really full on with Firestorm fandom, and I was so excited about this because like Plastique and Killer Frost working together. Oh my gosh, you know this is great, and I was so excited for it. And Firehawk, and again, Firehawk does look sexy. You got you got to give me that. She looks great. And, she always uh, did. She always looked great. It's a great character. And this is uh, one of the last times we're going to see this costume because in what is it? Uh, six issues, she's going to change her costume. Oh, so. in the crisis, yeah, she yeah. moves over to the blue one. I actually like the blue one better. So I like the blue right. one better too. But Grand Raphael Keenan was really the first person to make this costume work, make it pretty hot. So uh, and we get serpent on the cover. We get blue serpent. That's something. <laughs> it's always <laughs> exciting. All right. Uh, finishing up our recaps here. So we get another interlude over in Pittsburgh again, again, uh, setting things up for future uh, issues. The Pittsburgh police are investigating another series of grisly murders at Vandermeer University. And we, the readers, get another glimpse of this strange beast who, I'll just spoil it for you folks, who will eventually figure out is named the Weasel. So, uh, I know. Very Conway loved his animal-based villains. Uh, <laughs> back at Hudson That's Nuclear. It's a Spider-Man book. It's a very Spider-Man-y book. Yes, it is. Uh, back at Hudson uh, uh, Atomic, because I don't want to say that, that word again. Uh, Firestorm awakens to discover Killer Frost and Plastique have got away, and they head and they started to head north. Worse, Ronnie realizes that Professor Stein is non-responsive. It's like the mind of Professor Stein is unconscious. So Ronnie has to be Firestorm without the advice of Professor Stein. So Ronnie feels very alone. Uh, meanwhile, Lorraine Riley sees this new news broadcast about Killer Frost and Plastique and starts heading towards Niagara Falls and transforms into Firehawk. The villain's plan is for Killer Frost to freeze the Niagara Falls while Plastique was going to destroy the electrical, uh, gener- the electricity generating plant. Firestorm, in, during the battle, Firestorm takes out Plastique while Firehawk takes out Killer Frost. And in both cases, the heroes end up turning the villain's powers against them. And of course, we get some Firehawk, Firestorm, smoochy smooch. And in the end, Professor Stein is in the hospital with a mild concussion, which explains his absence this issue. So I guess you can get a concussion even when you're inside the Firestorm entity. I don't know how that works. Um, they discuss their individual futures and the future of Firestorm because Professor Stein does plan to move to Pittsburgh. So that is going to prove that, you know, that's going to be the end of Firestorm. So Ron is sad to lose both the professor and Firestorm. But after this adventure, he realizes that, you know, he isn't really just a dumb jock because he saved the day without the professor and he's going to be okay. So after this very touching, sad farewell, there's a moment of sudden hope when Ronnie realizes he's about to start college in a few months and he could just move to Pittsburgh and take to go to school there. Hooray! So that is the recap. There's like no other superheroes in Pittsburgh, so he's got the place to himself. Exactly right. I, well, who wants to go there? I mean, come on, really. Um. <laughs> you know, I I will. That's funny you say that because oh, yeah. uh, Darlin Tracy just went to Pittsburgh for a couple of oh, days yeah? and she loved it. Oh wow! Okay, so, I, I've never been there. Throwing it's one, that it's out. One, it's one of the major cities in the country that I've never actually been to. So I I, I joke about it, which isn't very fair. Yeah, she but uh, she sent lots of nice pictures. Looks very nice. 
Okay. Very cool. Well, now we have an ambassador for Pittsburgh. Perfect. So, all right. Um, we've talked about the covers. Let's talk about the inside art. So, uh, Alan Kupperberg, he is the inker. Uh, we, we know Raphael Cannon. We've known Raphael Cannon for quite a while now. Alan Kupperberg's inking. Um, heavy. I, I, go ahead. Well, you, you go ahead and start. Well, again, one word, heavy. Uh, I, yeah. don't, I don't see a lot of Raphael Cannon here. Uh, maybe he was doing kind of like extensive layouts, but this looks very if, – if they had just said this was Alan Kupperberg pencils and inks, I would have believed it. Alan, Alan Kupperberg is somebody who, I mean, I, you know, I should speak gently because he just passed away, of course, and he was the brother of our, of our friend, friend of the network, Paul Kupperberg. Yep. Um, I like Alan's stuff on specific features. I don't know if he was a great superhero artist necessarily. Uh-huh. I like those issues of JLA that he did, the Martian invasion ones. These I'm not so sure about. And it kind of reminds me about what, what I've said about, or I think we've both said, about George Tuska, where okay. I've seen some superhero stuff by George Tuska that's great. Those hostess – I've been finding some hostess ads that he drew of Iron Man. They're, oh, really? They're, okay. Yeah, I know. I had no idea he ever did them. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. But then those issues of JLA he did, not good. So huh. I think on superheroes he was hit or miss, and I think that's the same thing about Alan Coverberg. And like – there's a book that Two Mars put out a bunch of years ago called Streetwise, which are a bunch of short segments in black and white, kind of about um, whoever wrote it or drew it, it, like their history with comics. And Kupperberg drew his own two-page feature about working at DC and working at Atlas. And it's a more humor style, and mm-hmm. it's great. Like, I okay. genuinely love it. So I just don't know if he was the best fit for superheroes. And if he was, I don't know if he's the best fit for Firestorm. So I'm well, a little a little shaky on the art. It's interesting because I've got a little experience with him too because you know inking here, but then he he took over as the primary penciler on Blue Devil actually for a long time. See now that I would see that I can see. It worked, and I think my issue with him is probably more on the inking side because okay. you're right. He's, I think you said the word heavy. Is that right? Um, yeah, it's very it's very heavy inking stuff. Yeah, it's very scratchy. It's uh, used lots of darks. It, it actually reminds me a little bit of when Tom Mandrake inks himself. Yes. Um, it, it looks very reminiscent of that in, in certain ones. And if you think about you know, just just previously the issue here, issue 32, the issue of Firestorm with Phantom Stranger, that was that was penciled by Alan Kupperberg, and he did a fine job. You know, we, we didn't have any problems with his penciling there. Mm. So I got to think that if, an, you know, with a different inker, Kupperberg was capable. Here... He has he has his own style, but it's not the style Firestorm's had all these years. So it's it's not a huge disappointment. It's not like these issues are awful, but they're just not the best. And given the the awesome story between Plastique and Killer Frost, I kind of would have hoped for somebody a little more spectacular. But again, we're beating a bit of a dead horse here. It's it's very serviceable and it's enjoyable. It's just you know. Now, uh, a longtime supporter of the Firestorm fan blog, the blog I ran for years, a guy named John uh, McGavin, he was a buddy of ours. He actually owns several original pages from issue number 36, and he shared those with us, and we featured him on FirestormFan.com back in 2013, and they're pretty cool. So, neat stuff. Let's see. Um, on to Killer Frost and Plastic. Wanted to talk about them a little bit. I feel horrible for Louise Lincoln. That's awful. I mean, haunted by these nightmares of Killer Frost, feeling guilty for not being able to help her. And then uh, when she's talking to the therapist, and she's like, she's crying her eyes out, and she's like coming to some sort of revelation, and he just goes, I'm afraid our hour's <laughs> up. It's like, dude, that's so cold. Uh, and, and no pun intended. So, all right, my question to you, here's, here's a question for you. So what do you think's happening here? Does the Louise Lincoln 
like subsume her own identity and just starts acting like Killer Frost? Or is the Killer Frost like a separate entity that took her over? What, what, what do you feel when you read this? Uh, it's a, I, I, hmm. I, I get the sense it's a split personality. That it is that she is not in full control of what's happening. That's that's the read I got from it. I didn't. I'll admit I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But I just. Sure. I, I. That's that's my sort of take on it. Is that the, the, she knows it's in there. It's like a Bruce Banner Hulk thing, kind of. Okay, that's kind of how I always felt it was too. You know, it's like her subconscious created a Killer Frost personality. You know, based on what she knew from Crystal Frost, and that's what's taken over. Um, because it, the the whole idea of it being a separate entity was actually postulated in the uh, many, many, many issues from now during the elemental era of Firestorm. John Ostrander put forth the theory that the Killer Frost was actually like a disease you could catch kind of thought. You know, it was it was just a, a theory. I don't think they ever went anywhere with it. But um, for me, I, I always liked the idea that the Louise, Louise was more just uh, following uh, you know what she thought was right. And with Plastique, when she gets her powers, you know, she got this injection that her uh, her terrorist friend sent her. I'm just saying, like, can anyone get that injection? Because like black market time, big time. I mean, you want to fund your revolution? There's your there's your money right there, people. And they never even tell us what the terrorist motives are. We just know that they're terrorists. They don't even touch on it because I think by this point, Jerry Conway got enough letters saying that you know when she first appeared in issue seven, she had all her demands. You know that that was a move. You know, in 1982, that was a movement from the 70s that had just completely faded out. So. Storytelling wise, I do want to compliment page eleven, which is the six panels, and which, it's in, uh, which, which issue? Oh, I'm sorry, thirty thirty three. Okay. Where Ronnie and Martin are, and he's punching the the thing, and he's kicking it and shaking it. Like I like that it's the, yeah, oh, the newspaper, ben, the, the vending the, machine, the vending machine. I like that's a good comedy bit. Is that because we see all all six panels of is them in full, you know, from head to toe. I it's, right. it's, it's very newspaper strippy. So I thought that was funny. Like the storytelling, I think, is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, again, where I'm not as sure about the the anatomy and the inking and stuff, but in terms of the the panel layouts, I think they're all it's all great, and I think that's probably Raphael Kanan if he's getting pencil credit. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, he's been he's been at this for a number of years now. He knows he knows his way around this book, so absolutely. But it's a it's a funny exchange. I just like the Martin yeah. how mad Martin's getting, and it ends with Ronnie's like, "Let's get a burger." <laughs> it's really well done. It's very cute. I wonder if that was even in the script, or he just decided to throw that in because it's not in the dialogue. So it's fun. Uh, let's see what else. Um, Firestorm's powers—a couple of different things. We don't—we don't—we get some fun transmutation, not real wacky. We don't get anything crazy like we've gotten in some issues. Uh, we get, you know, a sidewalk. He turns to asbestos. He creates some fire trucks. Creates some fire hydrants. There's a lot of explosions and fire in these issues. Um, and we do learn a little something about their powers. They—they they make a big point of saying he can't use a, his atomic restructuring when he's immaterial. And I guess we got to figure out whether that's plot driven so that he can get ambushed at the end of one of those issues or if they're trying to actually limit how powerful he is because he's insanely powerful. So I don't know which, but I'm glad they put some limits on him because his powers just can be totally game, you know, in role playing terms, game breaking. Right. He can do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. So right, you already mentioned the Secret Wars thing. Dude, I, I even busted out my Secret Wars trade paperback this afternoon to flip through it. <laughs> yeah, this is like so exactly like it. I, I kind of wonder – and this is you know a year or two afterwards. So I wonder if Jerry was purposefully, I don't know, giving it a nod or something because it's so clearly – he even he even makes a big point. He, he yells and calls Ronnie just a big hunk and like hunk is emphasized in a giant word balloon. It's like it's just like Hulk one letter off, guys. I mean come on. So – I, I, part of me thinks it's got to be intentional. It's, it's almost too much to not be. 
another thing I, I like throughout these stories is you know Ronnie is continually messing up. He's feeling sorry for himself about um, about Stein leaving, about losing Firestorm and his friend, and you know he, he just keeps messing up. He, he spread that fire even further. But by the end, Ronnie saves the day by himself without Stein. You know, it, just, it creates this nice journey. And I keep calling this a little mini trade paperback, but it really does tell this nice story of Ronnie, you know, not feeling sure about himself, going through a hard time, and then by the end of it, coming at the end, being like, "Yeah, I am my own guy." So I like that. And uh, you could make a trade out of this, actually. You collect these four issues and throw the Phantom Stranger issue, you know, on the front of it, because that was right before this. That'd make a nice five-issue trade. Eh. That, so. is, that is one of the nice things about this, is that Coverberg did the art for all of them. It does give it a cohesiveness, which is nice. Because, like, even those issues of JLA, he did the Martian, Martian Invasion. He didn't do the first one. So it, it seems a little more slapdash. This, this, is kind of, this does all hang together better, because it's all by the same guy. Uh, and then I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about the subplots. Jerry Conway is the king of subplot building. I mean, he just – no one does it better. I love this because in here, you know, Ronnie is talking to his dad, and it's a very Peter Parker-like scene. You know, Ronnie's done something right for once, and his dad's really proud of him, and his dad's, like, kind of offering him a job. And basically the, the, the thought is, you know, the hero does something good, and the resulting accolades actually end up threatening his secret identity. You know, he can't catch a break. He does something right, and it goes wrong for him. And it's a very Peter Parker thing. I like that. Uh, the romance issues between Dorian and Firehawk, I, I should be tired of them, but I'm, I never tire of that. I love that dull triangle there. I feel absolutely horrible for Doreen. I mean, she is pouring her heart out. She's crying horribly about what happened to her and Ronnie. And the professor calls Firestorm, and Ronnie just literally disappears right behind her. She turns around, and tears down her face, and he's gone. I mean, could you imagine how she must feel? Oh, I've said a lot of bad things about her, but even I wouldn't wish that on her. <laughs> See, that's good writing, though. He found, it is. found a new way to, for you to sympathize. Exactly. Uh, Ronnie acing the, the chemistry test. And I only bring this up because this becomes a big point for a lot of Firestorm fans. Like, uh, people are always talking about uh, – because the theory is what we kind of get to is that Professor Stein's smarts are bleeding through into Ronnie is what the thought is. That's why he aces the, is the – well, I assume that was probably pretty obvious to a reader. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't – yeah. Like, I wasn't like, oh, my God, this is so – you know. Okay, and uh, and only bring this up because like people cite this all the time about how Ronnie's not just a dumb jock, and maybe it's not people, maybe it's just Keechee Baker. But he talks about it all the time. <laughs> uh, either way, it's, it gets brought up at least in my life frequently. Uh, I do like that we get some Professor Stein subplots, you know, with the with the you know, he's got his girlfriend, well, sort of girlfriend. He's got the, his friend from work, Harry. He's got a new job opportunity. I love it when Professor Stein gets stuff to do because you know he's my favorite character in this whole thing. And then uh, I do like the the building of the C plot, if you will, from a writing perspective, the C plot about the uh, the the weasel in P Pittsburgh, you know, because that's building, and we'll see that in a few issues. So that's pretty cool. Well done. I, I love the subplots Jerry does in these things. And uh, okay, so I told you I, I got to talk about the ads. Okay, I know you're reading the digital version, but check this out in just these four issues and i'm not even talking about all the ads these are just some of them dude during this period of time the beginning in 1985 can you name two series that launched that would have a big impact on our lives 1985 it's who's yeah. who who's who and crisis there, and crisis there are is there's there an ad for who's who the one with the three uh, demons uh the demons three or whatever oh no, yeah the guys are wrath and gas yeah thank you uh, that's what i was trying to get to because i know you can pronounce them and i can't uh that who's who ad was in here we got two different crisis ads across these issues the one that the, the old one that says universe crisis of an earth you know the one where they changed the title yep um there's a blue devil ad in here there is a v the comic, you know, from the, oh, the your favorite. Too. Yeah, I know. Uh, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, from your buddy Paul. Uh, there's a Batman and the Outsiders ad. There's a DC role-playing game ad. And there's a Superpowers action figure ad in these issues. I mean, it's just, it's a, like, everything I love came from these four months. It's unbelievable. <laughs> DC <laughs> had a good 80s. There's no yes, doubt they about did. it. 
Yes, they did. Oh, so good. So overall, what did you, you know, if, if you had to sum up your thoughts on these issues, good, bad, ugly, what? Um, not, not, not great, not bad. I'd say good. I give it a okay. solid good. I, and I, I do think they, I think they hold together, as I just said, better together as a story. And I'm glad that you chose to do them in kind of this one chunk. Cause I think they, I think it works better that way. It was, it was fun to kind of read them all in a big piece as opposed to stretching it out over like six months, which we've been doing previously. Right. Right. Yeah. This would have been painful over four months, but reading it is a little chunk was fun. I enjoyed it. I, I would rate it somewhere between a good and a great. I liked it more than you, uh, but the art probably took it down just a little bit of a notch for me. So I will say one last thing. I do love Jerry's in, the incongruity of in the last storyline using the Niagara Falls as the title for his story, yeah. the old no, Abin Costello routine. I just think that's funny. I don't know what it <laughs> has anything to do with Firestorm in particular, but I just I just like that it's the whole Niagara Falls bit. I think it's funny. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right, folks, I am going to catch my breath from talking about how much I love those Fury of Firestorm books because they make me so very happy. And while we're doing that, uh, we are going to take a podcast promo break and play a few commercials from our friends. And we will see you on the other side with your listener feedback. Dudes, it's totally time to listen to fan holes. What's that, Mikey? Like only the most tubular, righteous, gnarly podcast ever. Um, I don't know, Mikey. I've got some science projects to work on. Yeah, Mikey, and you know, some of the things those fan holes say, you know, really ticks me off. Well, why don't we see what Master Splinter has to say about listening to fan holes? Yeah, sure. Okay, Leo. But what do you think, Master Splinter? Should we listen to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for fans by the fans or not? I say... Go, Fan Holes! Go, Fan Holes! Go! <laughs> I made another funny! <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Turtle Power Podcast Hour, a podcast crossover event featuring Fanhole's podcast, Bored with Friends, an animated indulgence, coming this September. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. All right, folks, we're back from break, and now it's time for... Listeners Feedback! And we are going to...
to focus on your feedback from the last time we did the Aquaman classic issues, the SAG issues, or the gas issues, whatever you want to call them, uh, and the last time we covered these classic Fury of Firestorm issues. So we're going to kind of hone in on that. But first, we are going to do some iTunes reviews. So, folks, if you don't mind, we would sincerely appreciate if you would go out to iTunes and give us a review for the – and the title's important. It's Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast. That would be great. We really appreciate it. Right now, we, we've only got a small amount of reviews. The old feed we used to use, it's a little complicated. But anyway, this show had 115 reviews. It was fantastic. The new feed doesn't have all – it has 34, which is pretty good. But we could use some more, and um, we would appreciate it. And to paraphrase Ryan Daly, um, this guy who used to produce podcasts before he went and procreated. Anyway, to par- paraphrase him, um, if you have left a review, we sincerely appreciate it. And if you haven't, how do you sleep at night? I don't know. So, All right, Rob, why don't you start us off? We've got one a couple of iTunes reviews. reviews. One of the iTunes reviews we got was from It's Rainy Out. Uh, Aquaman is my favorite DC character, and I'm just a diehard fan of all his lore. It's just great to finally hear people who don't underrate or underestimate him as a character or in terms of his abilities. Most of the community sees him as a joke, and I'm constantly defending him during debates. I I don't know, man. I, I, I would think that uh, that time has passed considering he's a movie star. Uh, but uh, yes, you should know that uh, we love Aquaman here, and we will defend him as needed. But I don't think we're going to be needed much anymore. <laughs> I, I think he's still got a little bit of an edge. He's got to wear off uh, until that movie actually hits. I think it's. I think he's still battling that hill. I think I when people it. start seeing him riding powered parademons, <laughs> I think that'll probably do it. <laughs> Boy, that movie better not suck. All right. Um, <laughs> the next uh, iTunes review comes from JLU Castillo. He says, no one does it better. Rob and Shag are two of my favorite podcasters. Shag's enthusiasm is truly contagious, and Rob's nostalgic passion makes you feel good. Their back-and-forth banner alone is worth the free price of admission, to say the least. I started cl- I started listening years ago since I'm an Aquaman fan. Sorry, Rob, but Peter David is one of my favorite eras. Shag made me a Firestorm fan. I now have read all the original Firestorm series and enjoyed it immensely. The network has made me discover other great podcasts as well. It's truly a wonderful community of comic book fans. Also, thanks to you guys, I discovered In Stock Trades. It has now become my favorite website to shop trade paperbacks and hardcover collections. Awesome. So happy that uh, you're enjoying that, Castillo. And thank you so much for the nice compliments. We really appreciate that. You do not need to apologize for liking Peter David Aquaman, by the way. No one has to apologize. Don't. I, I've, I've stated I don't like it, but you do not need to apologize. If you like it, good for you. There we go. I like it, too. So, All right, those are the iTunes reviews for this time. Now we are going to get into your feedback, whether it be emails or social media or uh, on our website. The best place, by the way, to, to make your comments is on our website. Rob, what is that website? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. And go over to the Shows tab and look for Fire and Water, uh, Aquaman and Firestorm, and you can leave your comments on the post, and we will be sure to read it on a future episode. Also, you know, I forgot to mention, we should have earlier, uh, if you want to follow along with uh, all the coverage we just did, and it is over now, uh, you can go to our website and look for the gallery post. We'll have some images from these issues out there for you guys to see. So, all right, our first letter comes from a new writer. His name is Paul uh, Wilden. Burger. Did I say that right? Yeah. He even gave us the phonetic spelling because he knows I suck at this. So he writes, Robin Shag, about two years ago, I was searching the interwebs for superhero sites related to some of my favorite four-color characters. Using Firestorm as my keyword. I like this guy already. He says, using Firestorm as my keyword, my search results brought me to this weird page called Fire and Water. I thought to myself, this looks like something I might want to look at later. So I saved it to my favorites and didn't come back until this uh, past December 2016. 
And then I'm going I'm to jump a little further down because he did write quite a long uh, bit here. He says, uh, just yesterday I finished episode 100. What a great star-studded episode that was. I've been listening to you fellas uh, talk about your favorite heroes in comics in general for the last seven months. Two months just getting through episode 50. <laughs> it's a four-hour episode. That's how long it took to record. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and you've reignited my passion for comic books and in general and DC Comics more specifically. He goes on to talk about uh, a comic he bought when he was young, Flash number 290. That issue caught my eye, though not for the Flash vibrating through the wall to save a woman from being shot. No, it was the other guy in red and yellow on the cover, the one with his head on fire. I picked up that issue because Firestorm was such a cool-looking character, and I had to pick up the subsequent issues to find out what he was going to do next. Now, he's referring, of course, to those Firestorm backups that were in the Flash, uh, which were wonderful. And then he goes on to say, uh, listening to the first year's worth of your podcast, it was fun hearing you talk about the new Aquaman and Firestorm series, both of which I picked up from my LCS at the time. It made me realize how good Aquaman was and almost made me change my mind about how much I disliked that version of Firestorm. I will say I, will say I regret now not sticking around for Dan Jurgen's run. As I kept listening past my time of uh, collecting days were over, I found I still enjoyed hearing the passion in your voices when discussing not just your respective characters. It reminded me about what comics meant to me uh, for practically my whole life, and I may have stopped collecting comics, but I never stopped loving them. He continues on. He says, okay, Rob, in one of the early episodes, you used the word Donnybrook, and then a couple <laughs> issue episodes later, call Shag out for using Street Tough to describe Vibe, claiming it was outdated terminology. Ha! Uh... <laughs> I, I was chastising Shag because he was using a horribly racist term, and uh, Donnie Brook is neutral. So I, there you it's go. It's not racist. Street, street tough can it can apply to <laughs> any thug. I'm just doing what I can to avoid uh, the criticism here. And he also <laughs> follows. He says your interviews with Nick Cardi, Dan Jurgens, Jerry Conway, and Alan Brenner. Forgive me if I've forgotten any. Were all fantastic. How cool to be able to hear directly from some awesome creators makes me want to uh, do my own podcast. Thank you. Those were all uh, a lot of fun to do. Jerry is. Uh, Jerry's been great, a great, great friend of the show, and so was Dan Jurgens. And I did have the once in a lifetime opportunity to talk to Nick Cardi, and he's gone now, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm glad I had that afternoon with him because he was he was just so much fun. And of course, Alan Brennard, I'm just like I'm ready to build a statue to that guy. <laughs> you haven't yet. I, I I can't get the bronze. It's hard. Oh right, right. Yeah. It's expensive now. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to your comments, specifically to the Aquaman Classic Issues, number 40 through 41. Rob, which, and this, now this was on Fire and Water, episode number 196, by the way, just for reference. Right. Rob, what you got? Uh, Lucian Dazar, he says, Shag and Rob, I really like this episode, although Shag was so harsh on vintage Aquaman. I think the heat got to his head. By the way, not having, an, not having AC in Florida is like having an oxygen generator on a space station go out. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> and moving is a total whirl pain in the ass, myself having gone through it recently. I'm going to endeavor to collect 40, Aquaman 40s through 56. I realize I own number 40, and it is my second favorite cover of Aquaman's. Very cool, yeah. Yeah, they, you, you have to go get them as back issues because they're not reprinted, as we said. It's ridiculous. I know. And he says 40 is his second favorite Aquaman cover. I bet 42 is his favorite. We'll but find out. Lucien, let had, us know. I had forgotten until uh, I now I'm having the flashbacks now in his from his comment about the fact that I lost my AC and had to move all in June and July and it was just ugh horrible yeah crazy stuff 
uh, our pal Chris Franklin, of course, from our network, and he does uh, the Supermates podcast, and he does Superman Movie Minute with me and Power Records podcast. He says, all heat and no AC make Shag a cranky boy. I hope you remove the stick before you get to North Carolina, pal. Obviously, we know when, when, Chris, when Chris wrote this. Uh, seriously, this was a fun episode, and honestly, I'm most confused about water and Aquaman comics. Are all the buildings in Atlantis just open so water just flows through windows, doors, etc.? Why do they have the dome? Just to protect from invaders or aggressive sea creatures? I've never quite gotten a handle on that. Apero seems to be trying to bring in as much of Cardi's Aquaman as possible, which is very respectful to the previous artist and the readers. His Aquaman slowly evolves into the one we know, as we just talked about. And it's always nice to see early Apero before he settled into his go-to series of stock shots. I still love them, but this art is more spontaneous and somewhat more kinetic than some of his later work. Interesting. I didn't really think about that, yeah. Uh, I had some of the Adventure Digest reprints, but I stupidly gifted them to a friend who was a big Legion fan years ago. Stupid! Four exclamation marks. This is probably the most famous DC saga that's never been collected. Can't wait to hear more, and hopefully Shag will have cooled off by then. <laughs> you know, that's good, but I, I'm trying to think if there are any other major sagas that haven't been collected from DC. Hmm. I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But I'm sure something will come to us later. And Marvel's got a bunch of them because they're all licensed stuff they can't reprint anymore. But um, I guess it would depend on what your point of view is by major. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Yeah, like, oh, the Mark Veneer, Dan Spiegel, Blackhawks, never been reprinted. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call that major. Well, that's what yeah. I'm saying. It all depends on your point of view of what you call major. Yeah. Well, the, the Aquaman one's kind of major because it changed the direction of the a, yeah. an ongoing character forever, you know, yeah. so. All right, we're from our buddy Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. And recently he crossed the pond and even met Ryan Daly and Dr. Ange. Lucky guys. So. Uh, now he is coming at this from a completely different perspective He goes, boo, on the great Dick Giordano For making Aquaman just another quest book As you say, he had a unique family setup And it gets thrown out uh, And he says, I like this transitional Aparo I assume he's trying for a Cardi vibe More than that, uh, more than the latter Later, a more shorthand art style And uh, then he goes on to say De- Deputy Narkran is hot <laughs> That's the guy who's running Atlantis right Martin's now Martin's got to think for authoritarians apparently it's I guess very, so, very I guess upsetting. so uh, Brian Lynn wrote in, he says, It was only when I received my copy of Aquaman, a celebration of 75 years from my wife last Christmas, thanks again, dear, that I was able to read Aquaman number 40. I heard Rob speak of his love for this particular storyline and was excited to finally read part of it. After finishing it, I jumped to Comixology to see if they carried any of the other issues in the arc. I was pleasantly surprised to find that they did, but unfortunately not the whole run. Then, in answer to my prayers, you gentlemen came along with this episode. I look forward to your future coverage of the search for Mira, and will continue to offer prayers on your behalf to Sir Print, the god of all comic books, read <laughs> paperbacks and graphic novels. <laughs> That's great. I, I love that. that. Was fantastic. I do like how he thanks his wife in the comments specifically. He says, "You know, thanks, dear," as if you know. She's reading. She's gonna re- just if she's reading his comments. Yeah. <laughs> if he's anything like my wife, I mean, she. I don't think she even knows our URL. So. Um, all right. <laughs> oh, she knows I do those because I go away and leave her alone for a while. So, all right. Then we heard from Paco. He says, I really enjoy your most recent episode on Aquaman number 40 and 41. Thanks for going to some of those older stories. I'm really looking forward to future installments in the Search for Mera arc. I've only read the more recent Aquaman comics, but after listening to this, I found a couple of these issues at a local shop to start on rounding out the storyline. Look at you. You are, you are actively helping the back issue market, Rob. I'm <laughs> boosting the economy. That's right. Looking forward to digging into some Silver Age. P.S. As a note for Shag, uh, I, okay, I'll set this up. I mentioned how I had to put my 49 lawn boxes in storage during the move. They're, they're here now at the house, at the new house, and they're in my garage. But I had to move these 49 boxes. 49? 
I know. It's 49 long boxes. I know. And he says, as a note, Shag, uh, out of over 50 long boxes of comics, and you admittedly uh, you admitted to occasionally buying issues you already own because that was easier than finding your first copy. <laughs> I happened to mention to my very organized wife, and she insisted that this is not <laughs> – can't say it straight faced. And she insisted that not being able to find the books you own makes you a hoarder, not a collector. Just saying. <laughs> now, to be fair, be it's it's not that I can't find them. It's just like right now they're in the garage, right? They're stacked two layers deep. All the Christmas decorations are piled up on top of them. So if I want to get to say, I don't know, the Xbox, uh, and I don't really mean the video games, but the box with the X-Men comics or something, I have to move probably 15 boxes just to get to the, that box. It's a little easier just to pick up the comic on Comixology or a trade paperback. I'm just saying. Fine. Sounds I'm a hoarder. A little, sounds a little hoardery to me. That's all I'm saying. All right. Shut up. All right. <laughs> Moving on, we're going to cover the feedback from Fury of Fires from Classics number 30 through 32. That was on Fire and Water uh, podcast episode number 194 from May. Oof. Uh, we heard from our buddy Martin Stein Returns, or known as Robert Gross. Well, that's his nickname. It's really Robert Gross, who was a very frequent commenter in the earlier days. We haven't heard from him in a while. It says he's been very busy with his new studies. Anyway, he says, I remember hating the George Tusca art in Firestorm number 31 as a kid. I remember thinking that he got Firestorm's fire hair all wrong, for one thing. He looked like an orange dandelion. <laughs> and I was not a kid who paid attention to specific artists at all. Then uh, I used the expression to describe Clarissa Clemens, uh, Professor Stein's ex-wife. I called her the lilac-tinted whore during that episode, which I've been using for many years. And he says that would be a good name for a band. Uh, then he says, regarding Far Shore number 32, I remember thinking as a kid that Shoeshine in this issue looked nothing like Al Milgram's Shoeshine from the original run in Far Shore number 4. That bugged me a little. However, Professor Stein talking like a gangster was a lot of fun. The pairing of science versus magic that Shag and Rob's observe raises some interesting issues that are not really explored much in the DCU, such as what is the proper role for science and skepticism in a world where magic is real? So, And, and how do science and reason work in a universe where magic is real? One, of the, one almost never sees this issue explored in directly in uh, genre fiction. Rather, it's usually sidestepped or lampshaded. Huh, interesting. I, you know, I, I can only think of one example where you meet, where science and magic meet on a regular basis and are get discussed, and that was in the character um, post-crisis, post-infinite crisis, really, uh, of, um, what's his name? Mr. Terrific. Michael, Michael Holt from the JSA run. He very much was, he was, an, he was an atheist, and yet they would very frequently deal with him being confronted with something like the Spectre. And they'd be, you know, he's like, how do I rationalize my beliefs when I'm sitting there looking at the specter? How do I, how do I make this work? Because he's, he was like the fifth smartest man in the world, you know, and scientific genius. So was, that was probably the only place I can think where DC's gone after that head, head on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you can be an atheist and live in the DC universe. I don't, right. I don't, and it's impossible. It would be hard. Uh, then we hear from Zoom Yukonori, who now is actually a member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, doing his show Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Uh, absolutely love that title. He says, Shag, you're correct. That Gil Kane cover to Fury of Firestorm number 30 was indeed originally a pinup, which was previously pinned in issue number 27. Huh. I didn't even remember that. Maybe. And then uh, – and, and going on to this, there's, there's, there's a theme going on here. He says, Tints of Lilac could be the title of a potential spinoff podcast. <laughs> I think we have enough podcasts for now. Uh, we got a message from Redcon. He says, how come you guys never review classic Aquaman tales from the 60s when you review classic Firestorm tales? Lots of gems from the 60s and 70s to be mined. Redcon, we agree. You're welcome. 
heard from our buddy Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion Super Bloggers. He writes, as for Firestorm, I was reading the book back then, and I thought that the whole 2000 committee wrap-up felt completely rushed. They were uh, they were behind the scenes, big bad forever, and the ultimate defeat was done off-panel, and the breathtaker got taken out too easily. Kind of a bummer. And he says he can't wait for the upcoming review of the Killer Frost arc, one that has a special significance for me as a collector. Very interesting, folks. Uh, in fact, Dr. Ange is going to stop by here and tell us a little story about why these comics that we just covered are so important to him. Hello, Robin Chag. It's Dr. Ange from the Supergirl Block Comic Box Commentary, and I want to thank you very much for inviting me onto your show so I can discuss Fury of Firestorm number 34, a comic that I consider to be one of the most important comics in my collection, if you can believe it. See, when I was growing up, I was lucky enough to have a convenience store that was located right down the street from me that had a spinner rack. And so anytime I had spare change, I was able to just take a short walk, find a cover that intrigued me, and buy that comic. And I had been collecting comics like this since an early age. When we moved to our summer place, there was a convenience store just up the street from us that had a similar situation. So comic books were always just a short jaunt away and when you're a kid and you're sent to the convenience store to buy milk or bread usually there was a spare quarter in your pocket that you could grab something and yes I know by giving that cover price I'm dating myself around age 12 I started to collect comics a little bit more conventionally and by that I mean I actually had titles that I would look for on a monthly basis to purchase at that point, I had started to do some odd jobs here and there, so shoveling driveways, mowing lawns, doing some odd jobs for the local church, and always seemed to have a few bucks of my own to buy, and so had a very short list of comics that I would buy on a monthly basis that included the new Teen Titans, the new Swamp Thing comic that came out in the early 80s, and of course, Firestorm. I had been a Firestorm fan from the beginning, period. Uh, unfortunately, around late 1983, the convenience store down the street from me converted to a liquor store, and a liquor store had very little use for a spinner rack, and as a result, I didn't have access to comics anymore. The only comic book stores that were available to me were in downtown Providence, um, and that would require... Uh, what was considered a significant ride uh, by my family. So around October of 1983, suddenly I just didn't have that access to comics and therefore stopped collecting. That was around the time of Fury of Firestorm number 19, the issue where he fights a giant dandelion and suffers from hay fever. So somehow it seemed appropriate that that would be the funeral dirge for my collecting. But in the winter of 1985, my brother, who had been at law school at the time, came home for winter break and actually took the bus or the train, and I forget which one. Usually we drove down to pick him up and drive back, but he said no, it would just come in. And when he came home, he threw Fury of Firestorm number 34 at me. He had said in the bus station or the train station that there had been a newsstand, and he had noticed this comic, and he remembered that I really liked Firestorm, and he thought, why not get it for me? And this issue was sort of like, you know when you've given up something, and you're told to abstain, and don't even try to 
even sample it again because you'll only fall back into addiction. Well, this comic represented that. You know, here's Firestorm on the cover, weighed down by a giant chunk of ice. Obviously, Killer Frost was going to be the villain. Killer Frost was my favorite Firestorm villain. And then you open it up, and he's battling Plastique. And this is a different Killer Frost, even though she's still dressed in that, you know, hot winter ball gown. And and suddenly I was like, back in. You know, how did Firestorm get to this place? And what has happened in between? And oh my god, if this has happened to Firestorm, what has happened to the Legion of Superheroes? And what has happened to Swamp Thing? And so I think it was basically the next day, maybe with a little bit of hoarded Christmas money in my pocket, that I kind of demanded that my family take me to the comic book store. And I kind of bought all of the back issues that spanned between Firestorm 18 and Firestorm 34. And then I was back. I mean, I devoured that year and a half worth of Firestorm. I was on Christmas break, basically. Uh, and I told my family we had to figure out a way for me to be able to do this again because I just enjoyed it too much. Turns out that my father, who has been a diabetic for quite some time, I uh, needed to go to the pharmacy every two weeks or so to pick up supplies and insulin, and at that pharmacy was a spinner rack. So he agreed that f instead of getting those things on his way home from work, that he would instead go home and we would go together to that pharmacy and I could sort of spin the rack and get what I needed to get. And then about a year later, I got my driver's license, and I was able to find a new comic book store that was only a couple of miles down the road from the high school that I attended and, you know, just, you know, handle my addiction on my own terms. But I think back, and I, and I have to say that, honestly, if my brother had not, on a whim, bought this issue of Firestorm, I probably would not have gotten back into comics at all. I probably would have just had a box that was filled with comics and I would have thought about, oh, when I was a kid I used to read comic books, but I got out of it. And so I often thank my brother for you know getting me back in and I think my family often wonders, would it have been a better thing if he had not? <laughs> so, anyways, thanks for inviting me onto the show. I very much have enjoyed listening to these reviews of Classic Firestorm because I was there spinning the rack and buying them when they came out, and I really appreciate you letting me tell the story. Thanks again. That was awesome. Thank you, Dr. Ange, for sharing that. That was absolutely cool. What a cool story about his brother. I mean, man, talk about changing your life. Comic books. There it is, man. Comic books make us who we are, for good or bad. <laughs> I love it when the nuclear subs stop by. That's right. Absolutely. He did take his shoes off before he came in, right? Uh, I didn't. I didn't check. No, no, I mean, he did not, because I don't like that. So, no. Oh. I don't know that My that wife might have a problem with this. <laughs> All right, Doctor Angie, coming back around again for a while. <laughs> Apparently, neither am I. So, uh, <laughs> continuing on, we have comments from Martin Gray again. He says, "I have to defend George Tuska again. The fire hair, eighty-five to eighty-seven, is indeed wrong, but I like the face. It's very curvy, which is what Wilgram, Milgram was originally glowing for, and the figure work is dynamic." And Alex Nino inking a superhero comic? Where else has that happened? I so miss Alan Kupperberg. Just look at that lovely panel of Phantom Stranger watching Firestorm from a tower. Alan never got the level of praise he deserved. 
Uh, I hope, Martin, that you don't feel we were too harsh in this episode. I, I agree. I said I like Alan in a lot of other ways. I wasn't as sure about this one. But, but yeah, I do think he uh, probably was uh, underrated. Yeah, if you want to see some fun, check out those later issues of Blue Devil. Uh, he does a great job being because that's a fun book, you know, bringing the fun to it. So. Yeah. And once again, another message from Chris Franklin. He says, I had forgotten about Tusca's Firestorm hair from JLA. Yeah, that's not a good look, Roddy. I know hair metal is on the rise, but let's leave the teasing to the Sunset Strip, shall we? Great show, fellas. Uh. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, given these Firestorm issues we're reviewing, we're not quite done with George Tusca and Firestorm hair yet. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple more buried in here. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, where he does many shows, and just to name a couple – the Marvel Superheroes podcast and the podcast dedicated to Martian Manhunter. He says, I win. Now, this is where the, the Clarissa Clemens discussion gets going here. He goes, I wince every time I hear lilac tinted whore. I'm not going to go harsh on Shag finding his joy with that phrase, but dude, Jesus. Uh, which is followed up by Keechi Baker, who does the Sports and Comics Twitter handle. He says, as a lifelong male chauvinist and all-around anti-progressive, I am also wincing whenever I hear lilac-tinted whore, and it seems like it is misguided and in need of retirement. Her hair color may reflect part of her moniker, but as far as I know, she never cheated on Martin or sold any services. Uh, Lilac-tinted B? You know what B stands for, folks. Lilac-tinted B, maybe? I don't know. Such a minor character doesn't deserve this much attention. All right. Um... Very fair points, guys. You know, I'm glad you guys called me out on it. I will retire the phrase as of now. Yay! Uh, but and you're right. Uh, whore is probably not the right term. She, where it came about was she treated Martin very horribly, and when she was trying to manipulate Martin Stein, she actually used Ronnie for that purposes. She leaned on Ronnie at first, sort of like as a friend. Then there was very vague hints that maybe she was going to try and go all Mrs. Robinson to get Ronnie on her side. So that's where I went that direction. Uh, technically a whore is for money and she was getting paid by the 2000 committee. So maybe that could have fit, but either way, uh, I will retire the phrase and, uh, she will be the lilac tinted B if her name ever comes up again. But uh, I don't think it will cause she's out of the book at this point. All right. Uh, and, and she's really a horrible person. So and we heard from Brian Linton again. He says, I continue enjoy, to enjoy delving into what is to me the unknown world of classic Firestorm. Tuska's take on Firestorm's hair was interesting. Seeing Firestorm and Firehawk together and um, both with actually hair led me to look up scans from previous Fire and Water episodes to see if Tuska had done any similar treatment on her hair. Interestingly, it appears to me that Firehawk's hair tends to vary more between flames and actual hair depending on the artist. What troubled me more than that hair was the way in which the 2000 committee was summarily uh, summarily defeated. After all the buildup around the the behind-the-scenes machinations, I was hoping for more fleshed-out and satisfying ending than what we received. Absolutely true. Everyone's on the same page here. They clearly, for some reason, Jerry Conway felt the need to wrap up the 2000 committee and uh, the Assassination Bureau all in one go, because it was just bang, 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 all over and done very quickly. So whatever the reasons are behind the scenes, um, it, it made for an unsatisfying ending. However, it sort of cleared the deck. So for this fun, uh, killer frost plastic storyline. So, and the upcoming move to Pittsburgh. And, uh, and, you know, he also made a good point because killer frost, I'm sorry, not killer frost, but Firehawk really, her look really does get changed by the artist more so with this original costume. I mean, sometimes, yes, sometimes she's got fire wings. Sometimes her wings actually look like feathers. Sometimes her hair is just a big fireball. Sometimes it actually looks like hair that's on fire. It is completely varying depending on the artist. Cannon was really the first person who brought any sort sort of, you know, continuity to her look, like we saw on the cover here of these issues. But yeah, it was very, very changing. So uh, that's it for the feedback. But, you know, Rob, we have been negligent. We need, we owe someone a Steam Award, uh, without a doubt. Our friend, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, 
many, many moons ago, he sent each of us a framed piece of original art that he did himself of our favorite characters. You got one of Aquaman, I got one of Firestorm that he drew, and these weren't just any old drawings. These were drawings of the characters in the style of their classic 1980s superpowers action figure. <laughs> I've got mine up on my shelf. It's Firestorm. You look at it, you, you know immediately it's the action figure because the hair is that perfect mold of the Firestorm hair from the action figure. I absolutely love it. And uh, Jared, you know, are you... Our thanks. Uh, we really sincerely appreciate it. You deserve your Steam Award. In fact, I will give it to you in person because by, by the time this episode comes out, I will have actually hung out with Jared for the day. Uh, it's going to be next week, and I will give him his Steam Award in person, folks. Very hands-on, Jack. Uh, well, you know, I, I try to do my job. So, All right, folks, I think that is going to do it. Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? I'm going to go make a sandwich while you do this. <laughs> I have uh, many Twitter feeds. Uh, there's the uh, Film and Water pod. There's uh, Superman Move Mini, Move Minute. There's Treasury Comics. There's Digest Cast. There's Pod Dylan. And, of course, we have our main uh, Twitter feed, which is FW Podcasts. You're also on Facebook and well, Tinder yeah. and Grindr and all yeah, that I am, stuff. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I am on all those things, yeah. Uh, you can right. find me at Firestorm Fan on Twitter and, of course, on Facebook uh, under either Firestorm Fan or, or, more importantly, you can find me by my name, Shag Matthews, and you can also find us the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That's probably the best way to find us for all that stuff, folks. Please get out on the social medias, share your thoughts, let us know what you thought of these issues, use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast. Go out to the website, leave the comments, because that's probably your best place to have communication, talk about these things. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, too. Think of these classic issues, classic uh, comics. And, uh, and, and as Rob put at the top of the issue, if you feel a strong passion that you want us to be covering the more modern issues of Aquaman, let us know. You know, uh, If there's enough of a, an, an uproar, maybe we'll do something about that. So, so. But I think that's going to do it for now, folks. Uh, and until next time, fan the flame. And ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in air. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman. Super friends forever. Yeah. You know what they say. Don't meet your idols. It only leads to heartache. Freeze is using you like some kind of living battery. He's forcing her to supply a perpetual source of cold to the freeze ray by powering her with a perpetual source of heat. So... You do pay attention in class. On occasion, yeah. But you do realize if we disconnect Frost, she skates free. Look out! She does like me. Yeah, yeah.